This episode is brought to you by Shadowed Stars, a sci-fi series with a mature flavor from author Stephen Kautz. Mysterious abductions and UFO sightings have caused the world to unite under one leader. So begins the journey into space and the rise of an intergalactic war. Shadowed Stars will be at least eight books long and takes a bold new approach to storytelling. Even numbered books follow one set of characters while odd books follow another with crossovers between. Book one, Shadowed Stars, is available for purchase now on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, iTunes, and more. The sequel, Shadowed Stars, Reign of the Black Guard, will be released by the end of June. Find out more at shadowedstarsbooks.com. Author Stephen Kautz has created a dark and riveting tale where the very survival of the human race is no guarantee and threats lurk around every shadowed star. The future is a scary yet hopeful place. Often, our imperfect memories of what came before can steer us onto the right path or lead us into ruin. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with author Megan E. O'Keefe. Her latest novel, Catalyst Gate, concludes the thrilling Protectorate space opera trilogy and is out today from Orbit Books. Megan and I discuss fractal plotting, the creeping social impact of artificial intelligence, and the secret to a compelling plot twist. And on that note, let's dive right into the interview and see what Megan has to say. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, Megan. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Uh, And so reading through your author bio, I think the very first thing that jumped out at me was that you used to have a newsletter chronicling the daily adventures of the local cat population. How did that come about? (laughs) Yeah, so my my mom was a journalist. Um, She was a single mom. So um, I was sort of with her all the time when I was a little kid. And I got dragged around to um, all of... She was a a news journalist, so a lot of crime scenes, actually. But um, Oh, wow. Yeah, I got, so, you know, I got I tagged along and I sort of spent my life in the newsroom, sort of like a community there. And I ended up finding this, this little template um, because, you know, newspapers didn't used to be laid out digitally. They used to be laid out with these giant clip art books where you would literally cut out the clip art that you needed and paste it together and take a picture with a big camera. And I found a template for like a really small newsletter and I thought it was cool and they let me have it. So I took that. And I use a you know the really terrible Xerox machine to make a bunch of sort of patchy grainy copies, and did my own reporting on the uh, the local cats for some reason. I was obsessed with cats. I still am. So that's really the only reason I have. <laughs> they were there, and I had a lot of free time on my hands as a child. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anyone really needs a reason to be obsessed with cats. I think cats are right? incredible. They're amazing. But yeah, so if it's on the cat adventures, are there any particularly memorable cat adventures? Oh gosh, well, I mean, we—I mean, it's typical cat stuff, right? So it's not gonna be sure. too exciting. <laughs> um, we did have one, like uh, her kitten got away and got uh, stuck up a tree, and she she had to go get it down, and it it became like this thing where like the whole neighborhood came out to watch. Okay, <laughs> I, I guess this is what we did before YouTube, but that was gotcha. that was probably the most memorable one. Yeah, uh, my cats are all strictly indoor, so no tree climbing for them. 
Yes. As, as an adult, I now know better and, and do keep the kitties indoors. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I also saw that you said you tend to collect a lot of hobbies uh, and some pretty interesting ones too, like game design, uh, soap making, uh, I think cross-stitch at one point. So any particular hobbies you're on now? Yeah, I mean, I, I do bounce around a little. I started um, the pandemic stuff. I started making more of my clothes just because I finally had the fabric and the time to use my sewing machine. So that was something I've been doing a bit more. I am still doing cross-stitch. A friend who just had a baby, so she wants... Aww. Well, she doesn't want, but I am making for her <laughs> a sampler <laughs> that is a surprise. And she will probably listen to this, but that's okay. <laughs> Okay. Well, I guess uh, depending on when you're giving it to her, it should be fine. This is not coming out until around book release time. Oh, yeah. I mean, cross-stitch takes years anyway, so you know, oh, she'll forget. Okay. She'll forget by then. It's fine. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. But yeah, so I guess uh, getting more into things, can you remember what first made you fall in love with science fiction and fantasy? Gosh. Um, so when I was like nine or 10, somewhere in there, I had um, this friend who was started out as sort of being thrust upon me because our mothers were friends, you know, and that's how that happens. And she was a bit older and her name was actually Arwen. That was her real name that her mother gave her. <laughs> and she, uh, she introduced me to Dungeons and Dragons and we did a lot of that together. And then we got online in the, the early days of chat rooms and things like that and message boards and did a lot of freestyle role playing until like, I don't know, three, four in the morning, later than children should be awake. Uh, to be honest. Um, but we, we did a lot of that together and had our own little D&D group. And that was really where it officially started for me. Gotcha. I love that. I've been trying to get into D&D &D with the whole like pandemic and everyone's on lockdown kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think I had two campaigns going, but they both sort of fizzled out last year. So hopefully I can get that started yeah. up again. It's pretty common, unfortunately. Like, you know, it's harder as adults for everybody to find the time that aligns to get together. Yeah, that's true. Um, but yeah, so uh, you did mention that your mom was a journalist and you kind of grew up in a writerly household. So what kind of influence did that have on you as a writer? So, I mean, it's complex, right? So my mom was a journalist and she was into news for um, small local communities. I think the biggest paper she ever worked for was San Jose Mercury. So there are small papers. And as we all know, writing doesn't pay particularly well. And uh, news journalism did not pay particularly well, even more so than a lot of writing. So we, I mean, we, we grew up you know, right, right at the poverty line for the most part. And to me growing up, I was like, well, I'm not going to be a writer, right? You know, writers, writers don't have heaters. This is terrible. <laughs> so I I've actually fought against it quite a while as like a vocation because of that experience. You know, I, I wanted more stability in my life than that career path usually offers. But I never really stopped writing. So it eventually sort of caught up with me, I guess. And now I'm a writer anyway. But I do have hating, so that's nice. <laughs> that is good. That is yeah. definitely something to be happy about. Yeah, the industry has, well, my side of the industry is completely different than her side of the industry was. She was also very confused because she was not particularly a science fiction fan. Um, like her thesis was on Steinbeck. So <laughs> that's, uh, that was a fun conversation. But she came around. <laughs> that's good that's good yeah and i mean you have quite a few science fiction books under your belt now so i hope she comes around yeah she does read them so. oh good <laughs> Yay. i want something <laughs> 
is that the kind of situation where you have like the writerly parent critique of your work or not so much? No, no. She will tell me her wild theories though. Um, she was okay. really convinced Santa was pregnant for a while and I'm not sure why. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. But yeah, so uh, I know like speaking of writing as a vocation, I think it was back in 2019 or so you were saying that 2020 was going to be the year that you transitioned full time to writing. Um, so how did that work out? I have no idea if a global pandemic and lockdown <laughs> would be good or bad for that. Uh, I mean, I, I did it anyway. Um, so there's okay. that. <laughs> Um, I had this very strange situation where I, I ran a business, you know, right up until the end of 2019. And I had finally crafted plans to shut it down in a methodical manner. But Christmas Day of 2019, my husband needed emergency surgery um, that was quite extensive. And his recovery time ended up being, well, months really ran right up until the pandemic started. So like really for us, you know, those sort of social isolation pandemic things started in late December. So that happened and I was like, well, I'm just yanking the rug. And I, you know, I pulled the business rather inelegantly <laughs> and shut it down and, and switched over to full-time writing. And it was actually, it was a good move in the end because it gave me something to really like focus on creatively. So like when things were, you know, sort of falling apart, not literally, I mean, it really wasn't that bad, but when, you know, things were sort of chaotic all around, I had, you know, the book to dive into and, and work on kind of thing. So it ended up, being a good choice and yeah, things have seemed to work out with contracts and that kind of thing. And I mean, the protectorate trilogy earned out today as of a couple of hours ago, I got the official notice. So that's amazing. Congratulations. Well. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I did not expect that advanced turnout for a long time. So I was extremely surprised. My agent was so surprised he had to like go request the actual royalty statement <laughs> just to make sure when the check magically appeared. <laughs> so. That's, I mean, that's good news, right? When it's so good that you have to verify because it's that. Yeah. Out there. <laughs> we were slightly skeptical, but it was true. I know when uh, I was younger, before I started learning more about the writing industry, and there's still so much that I don't know, I always kind of assumed that writers were either like dead for 50, 60 years or like rolling in piles of cash. And I realized that's not really an accurate statement of the industry. I know, Hollywood makes us way more glamorous than we are. So. Yeah, but no, that's that's fantastic, uh, especially before book three even releases. Yeah, that's I've been told it's quite rare, so <laughs> over the moon excited. <laughs> uh, so I guess more on the technical side of writing then. I have heard that your first drafts tend to be pretty lean and they normally grow 10 or 15% or so during editing. So what's that editing process like for you then? Uh, a lot of it for me. So I, I am a fairly quick drafter, relatively speaking. When I'm drafting, I get what's sort of hyper-focused, I guess, a little obsessive. So I'll do 5,000 words in a day on average when I'm drafting. Wow. And like, I'm just getting it out, right? I'm just sort of like, and I know what's happening. Like I know my outline and all the world building stuff. And usually what I have to do when my first revision passes go through and be like, okay, what didn't I actually explain to people that I knew that needs to be on the page? And that's where a lot of the expansion comes from is getting world building details a little more up and relevant. And sometimes I'll add in like small character moments or scenes to sort of add a little more breath in between things because my instinct is like, is, you know, gotta go fast, Sonic, like uh, just whipping through the plot and turns and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's, 
150,000 word book, people are not going to want to read it that quickly. So we got to give them some breathers sometimes and that stuff I'll, I'll go put in after I'm done. Right. Although I will say uh, Velocity Weapon in particular really lives up to its name of going at a high velocity the whole time. It definitely <laughs> uh, was a quick read for me. Awesome. Thank you. Actually, a friend, writer friend of mine named, uh, gave me that title uh, for that reason, actually, because he read oh, it really? on a plane when he was flying home from our, we have like a cabin we meet up to write in for, well, in, in non-pandemic times, we have a cabin we meet up to write in for a week, <laughs> uh, a group of us, and he read it on the flight home, and this is your title. The whole thing? <laughs> the whole thing, yeah. Wow. I didn't have a title at the time. Yeah. <laughs> So I thank him for that continually. <laughs> it works on multiple levels then, yeah. And it does set up, I really am a fan of the titles that have two words and they kind of feel similar, even though you can throw anything out there, right? And I feel like your right, series yeah. definitely falls under that. We'll say like getting, because, you know, you kind of want to keep a theme going, right? So after mm. a while, it's like when you're working with marketing and trying to decide, you know, okay, now we have to title the sequel. It gets pretty funny. Like some of the titles that get batted back and forth because they're just like, okay, well, we've got like science word and object word. Like let's <laughs> stick these right. together. And I'm like, I can't, <laughs> that doesn't work in a lot of cases, but it's fun. Are there the any process. examples of those titles that you can remember? Oh, gosh. I don't think I can think of any off the top of my head. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. definitely putting you on the spot there. That was that was years ago at this point <laughs> for that Right, one. yeah. Uh, as fast as the books may read, uh, the actual production process is much, much slower. It takes some time, yeah. So, okay, now let's dive ahead first into writing craft geekery. Because a couple years ago on the Fictitious podcast, you said that you use Trello to create Kanban boards for planning your novels. And I don't think I've ever heard of another writer using a system like that. So <laughs> could you walk us through the details on how that works? So this is something um, that I use less now during pandemic times because I had to switch to primarily my laptop for work uh, when previously I had my desktop, which had like the big screen where I could lay things out and Emma doesn't really look quite as good on that. But uh, what I would do is the system requires columns. So you'll have, you know, columns that you can insert cards into. And it's really called like a, almost a digital corkboard with like index cards for the most part. So I'd have a column for like, this column is all of my characters and I could attach, you know, notes about their parents or concept art that I thought maybe looked similar, kind of captured the vibes. Um, and I would tag them with which books they appeared in. And uh, so that, and when you tag something in Trello, it gives you a little colored label. So you can see like at a glance, you know, this character was in this book and then they dropped off after this book, you know, that kind of thing. And I could have like really extensive timelines for the world and uh, the storyboarding itself all my world building details, all that kind of stuff. And it was nice because it was cross-platform. So I can, you know, if I'm up late goofing around on my phone and I have an idea, I can just put it in there. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I've been spending, I feel like, way longer than I should during this pandemic trying to find like the perfect productivity software. Uh, and so Trello <laughs> definitely sounds interesting. It's a trap I fall into sometimes. There's there's a new one out for writers called Plotter. Like, P-L-O-T-T-R. Okay. I don't know if you've seen this one. Um, I, I have not. Like, I heard about it maybe three days ago. Uh, my friend okay. Andrea Stewart <laughs> just started using it, and she's obsessed. So she was shouting at me about it, trying to get me to okay. abandon my beautiful Excel spreadsheets. But um, <laughs> it's specifically a plotting tool for writers. So it, it looks like, uh, like, a, like a thought tree, really. 
and for your scenes from chapter to chapter and it has color coding for like this is an intense scene you know, this is a sad scene this is a fast scene this is a slow scene that kind of stuff so you can see like the overall structure of the book and like okay. how the pacing flows that's um, very cool really cool I feel like I've heard you did something similar at some point where you would graphically show kind of like when you're raising questions and answering questions so you can kind of see how the tension's going. Yeah, I do that in, um, well, in my spreadsheets now that I'm, I'm more over on that side of thing with Excel. Um, I, I color code like, you know, this this chapter is supposed to like really hit hard too. So I'll be like, you know, this one is a certain color where I'm like, I need the emotional impact to really hit here. So I have to make sure I actually build up properly for it before that happens. And then I'll change the, I'll have like, I have a questions answered, questions raised column, which is what you're gotcha. referencing there. Where I'll put like, okay, you know, this is, readers are going to be wondering about this and I have to, you know, so I'll look and make sure I answer it at some point if I'm, that's something I want to answer in that book um, further down the line. Very cool. So yeah, I guess you said that's kind of Excel is what you've moved to from Trello? Yeah, primarily that's what I'm using right now. Okay. And is that the main way you organize everything is you have the columns like questions raised, questions answered. Do you still do like which character appears in which book, all of that? Yeah. So uh, the way I set up my spreadsheets, I'll have like, um, you know, multiple sheets within one document, right? So, you know, characters and terminology, those will be two separate sheets. I'll have a world timeline. That's another sheet. And then I have full outlines for each book um, because I tend to write in trilogies. So I'll have, you know, across the top uh, the chapter whose point of view it's from like what what number chapter for that point of view it is which is a very complicated sentence <laughs> <laughs> so it'd be like stand a one thomas two that kind of thing right. you know? okay um which helps when i'm restructuring and revisions if i need to move things around uh, the description of what happens questions you know raise questions answered tone and then a list of the characters that appear in that chapter. So I sort of can see at a glance, you know, who's, who's dropped off, who needs more screen time, that kind of thing. Gotcha. Yeah. Like, I I'm love that. bring this person back at the end. Like you need to have seen them in the last 20 chapters, that kind of thing. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And uh, do you also keep track of uh, chapter titles for those? Because I, I will say, mm -hmm. I think you have one of my favorite chapter titles of all time. I want to say it's in Chaos Vector where you end a chapter saying like, all right, yo, ho, ho. And then the next <laughs> chapter is called, and a bottle of rum. <laughs> that was, that was chaos vector. Yeah. Yep. I, I do uh, enjoy playing with those. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the, the titles are in there. Okay, gotcha, that makes sense. But yeah, okay, so you've also talked before about treating your plots as fractals, where there's kind of this one big structure with several smaller structures inside of that. So what kinds of benefits do you think this approach has, and how do you go about actually putting a fractal plot together? Um, so I, it's something that I like to do personally, just because I'm kind of nerdy and like the challenge. Um, I'll be honest, I just enjoy playing with the mechanics of it. But it also, in my opinion, because every every scene is sort of a microcosm of the whole, right? And if I'm trying to convey, you know, a certain mood with the book or address certain themes, it's nice to have that resonance in the smaller moments that echo the, the whole. So I'll set up a plot and say, well, you've got, uh, you know, how do plots work? Like introduction, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, your act one, sort of rising action, your midpoint reversal, um, gearing up for the final confrontation, act four, and um, then 
So you've got that, right? And if you can sort of boil that down and in every scene have some element of that, even when you're having slower moments, and in my experience, things feel more complete and you tend to read the scene a little faster just because it does have that structure to sort of carry you through. Like, okay. um, even, I mean, before you, anybody starts writing or before, you know, they start really thinking about craft, uh, we're all readers, right. For the most part, or at least we consume media in some way we watch, you know, movies and TV and stuff like that. So we have this sort of internal rhythm for like how a story should feel and how it should go. And when you echo that and you can kind of play with it sometimes too, and subvert some expectations to like really do interesting things. Um, it's just a, a more interesting reading experience in my opinion. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point, especially that's not something I really thought about before, like stories having a rhythm that we kind of know in the back of our minds, I guess. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I could consciously explain to you what that rhythm is, but I feel like I could probably recognize it if I saw it. Yeah, it's something that I, I learned as I was, you know, when I was first starting out getting into writing is sort of being able to put words to those feelings I was just sort of having naturally. It's like, well, you know, you know the fight is coming or you know like those two are gonna kiss like and this is like the scene where that's gonna happen like you just sort of feel these things like unfolding and since i do like to play with expectations a little that certainly helps me with my my plot twist shenanigans so <laughs> yeah and you're giving me a perfect segue there because i did find uh i think it was maybe last year a great twitter thread you posted about how to pull off a plot twist mm -hmm. um and i know i tend to love a good plot twist but occasionally i read a book or watch a movie where the big twist doesn't really land right uh, mm -hmm. so how exactly do you pull off a plot twist successfully so, I mean, this is always something I, I caveat with the, you know, no plot twist will work for everyone. And also, sure. I never set out to be the plot twist writer. This is a thing that was <laughs> that happened to me. Like, I thought I was writing a normal book. Uh, <laughs> and then Breit was like, oh, no, you're my plot twist girl. I'm like, oh, I should think about this critically, um, <laughs> which is uh, where all the thoughts, you know, I had that eventually ended up in that Twitter thread came from. The way I like to think of it is, um, again, I go back to resonance, right? Because resonance for me is is something that is deeply satisfying as a reader. Like if I feel like this was, this was what was maybe not expected, but this was always coming and it's interesting, I'm really happy with it. So I look at the overall sort of theme and the overall, um, call it through line. So sort of the, the driving goal of the character. And I won't, I won't do the actual spoiler, but in Velocity Weapon, um, Santa's goal is always to get home. No matter what actually happens with the plot, her goal is still to get home. And that is her journey. And that is, you know, the, the theme is finding home and what it means and all that kind of stuff. You know, all the, you know, English professor kind of stuff is, is that. But when the twist comes and like the, the world is completely different and everything is not as she seems, she is still trying to get home. But the context around what home is has changed. That's something like whenever I'm going to do to do a rug pull, I want to make sure that I'm just recontextualizing. I'm not completely, you know, 180 flipping the script or anything. It's not, you know, well, it was all a dream, nothing like that. <laughs> um, like the, it's just a recontextualization of what was already there. Yeah, I guess 
it's sort of in my mind uh, a less eloquent way of kind of contextualizing that is it's kind of like a good plot twist maybe is slamming the accelerator pedal down versus swerving into a totally new direction and kind of leaving you feeling just like what just happened. Exactly. Yeah, you lean into what you've already established. Yeah, great. Stay tuned for more after the break. Once again, this episode is brought to you by Shadowed Stars, a mature science fiction series by author Stephen Kautz that explores the darker side of first contact with extraterrestrial life. Mysterious abductions and UFO sightings are only the start of humanity's journey into space and the rise of an intergalactic war. Every month on ShadowedStarsBooks.com, new glossary entries and short stories are posted that are 100% free to read. And if the story catches your eye, the Shadowed Stars novel is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, iTunes, and more. Stay tuned for the sequel, Shadowed Stars, Reign of the Black Guard, coming this July. This dark and riveting science fiction tale by Stephen Kautz is not for the faint of heart. The very survival of the human race is no guarantee, and threats lurk around every shadowed star. And so, okay. Yeah, you're here to talk about uh, the Protectorate series, and I guess maybe not too many spoilers about Catalyst Gate, since I know some of our listeners have not read <laughs> Velocity Weapon yet. But do you have a pitch for the Protectorate trilogy? <laughs> it's about Santa trying to get home. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yeah. uh, it, I'm terrible at these things, but it um, follows Santa, of course, who is a gunnery sergeant who is uh, shot down in the war. And she wakes up 230 years later to find herself on an empty enemy uh, warship that is controlled by a potentially hostile artificial intelligence. It's hard to tell it, because it is 230 years later. The entire star system is dead and she has to figure out how to get home. And those are the events of the first chapter. So those are no spoilers. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I think, uh, I don't know if this is how all the copies are, but the audiobook version that I read, it starts out with like kind of a teaser and it like is that, <laughs> it, like oh, a teaser it? for the first chapter pretty much. It's like, yep, she wakes up, uh, she's naked, she's missing her leg and she's on an enemy ship. Oh no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if the print versions have that, but I think it's great that the audio does. And uh, for anyone who enjoys listening to audiobooks, I do highly recommend the audio for this series because the narrator is excellent. But yeah, so I guess getting into world building a bit, how exactly do you world build a society that's, I think this is over a thousand years in the future. So I look back at how much technology has changed just in the last 20 or 30 years or so, and I can't even begin to imagine what a functioning <laughs> society would look like that far in the future. I mean, it's, it is an impossible thing to do with any level of actual realism. I will say that. Um, the past is, is a foreign place, and um, we are living in the past of, of all of these far future books. So we, we can't. I mean, we, we take speculative guesses because we're writing speculative fiction. Imagine that. But there's no, you know, uh, you just can't get it right. Like, you, you can just make it cool, um, in my opinion. <laughs> so um, in, in the case of the Protectorate books, I thought, well, it was like, well, I, you know, I live in the Silicon Valley area, right? And um, sort of the idea for the, the main government in the books is that it is a corporation that, that grew too far too fast and ended up taking political power and sort of taking over all of humanity and becoming empire. But it still has a lot of like the echoes of the corporate structure and the, the fact that it was a tech company coming up uh, left over. There's a 
a cult of personality around the CEO who, um, <laughs> I mean, was, was the CEO of a space company. So <laughs> I'm sure you all can draw those lines. Yep. Totally separate from reality. No yep. parallels whatsoever. Completely made up. Entirely speculative. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you take what you already have and extrapolate. What, is, what would this be if it was pushed to its limit? And that's what I like to play with. Yeah, I think it definitely makes for interesting fiction. And it's not like anybody is going to know if you get it wrong, right? Or Right? Yeah, I'll be if, dead. So, you know. There you go. And hey, if the books are still years, around, <laughs> right? if the books yeah. are still around, then yeah, that's an even bigger uh, accomplishment than earning out. Exactly. Yeah. That's the goal. Yep. <laughs> books in a thousand years. So uh, one of your trademarks as a writer seems to be stories that mess around with memory and timelines. So why do you like this so much and how do you avoid I feel like there could be some complexities or pitfalls that go along with that kind of uh, structure for a story. Well, I always find it. I will. I have always found it fascinating that memories are more of this. They're not real memories for the most part. They're sort of the stories we tell ourselves about the event that happened. And I, I personally have had some issues with memory over the years due to neurological issues. Um, I have something called autonomic dysfunction, um, which is a big umbrella term that means a lot of things don't quite work right uh, with my nervous system. So for me, it's more of like an exploration of, okay, well, what does memory actually mean? I am sort of a nerd for um, Jean-Paul Sartre and, you know, the whole like being, you know, being is the only existence, that kind of stuff. And if existence is a long chain of memory, what does it mean when the long chain of memory is inherently faulty? And that is something I enjoy playing with and seem to keep coming back to over and over again. I'm working on a new trilogy right now and it's still in there. So (laughs) (laughs) I I probably won't let it go anytime soon. But uh, as far as avoiding pitfalls go, um, I just treat it carefully with consideration, do a lot of research, um, and rely, of course, on my my beta readers and my editor to tell me when I've gone astray. Yeah, I mean, I think that's all you can do. And I think that's a fascinating tool to have in your apparently becoming part of your writerly brand. But yeah, and so I also, on the sci-fi side of things, I love stories involving artificial intelligence. Uh, There's just so much to explore from the technology, the ethics, and the overall societal impact. Um, And I know the Protectorate series takes place a long time from now in a galaxy far, far away. But do you have any thoughts on the role that AI plays in our present day society? <laughs> How long do you have? <laughs> uh, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So neutral and wary would be uh, my primary standpoint, I suppose. Um, the way, I mean, obviously, the way we're using artificial intelligence right now is absolutely nothing like what science fiction supposes. Like artificial intelligence in, in its infancy, we do not have anything close to general AI. Um, let alone like a, a super intelligence that is so far like in, in the, our future right now is to be pure fantasy. Um, but what we do have, unfortunately, and this is something I do touch on a little bit in the book, is a lot of very, very smart systems being programmed by people with very, very narrow view sets. And right now, artificial intelligence is only as good as the data set you give it. So you can make an AI that is really good at seeing faces, but if all of the faces in your company and all the faces you use as the data set to train that AI look about the same, 
it's not going to recognize another kind of person as a real face. And when we start using these things in the broader world, um, facial recognition being a, a big one that's being sort of pushed into mass use, um, especially by governments and security and surveillance and that kind of thing. If you don't pay attention to what kind of data set you use, it's sort of this banality of horrors where you accidentally unperson an entire group. I always thought, you know, the very simple example would be, you know, the iPhone's not recognizing people with dark skin to unlock the cameras. And it's it's something we need a lot of ethics overview about. And I am uncertain that we will get the correct kind of ethics overview that we need at the companies who have the think tanks and the, the brilliant minds at work who are just, and, and I say this with all love because I am a huge nerd who like, gets all over an idea and wants to just chase it down and figure it out, right? But I, I know a lot of people in these companies, VC-sponsored companies, that they just do research. They just try to figure out how to do one thing. And it's so narrow that they're just really passionate about figuring out the problem without considering the consequences. And that concerns me. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to say it's Jurassic Park, where uh, it has like the iconic line is like, they spent so long figuring out whether they could, they never thought about whether they should. Uh, definitely paraphrasing there, but definitely exactly. a very relevant uh, for the times line. Yeah. I mean, it's cool when you're, you know, you're on the cutting edge and you're doing the fun thing and you're figuring stuff out and making new, new, new things. Um, but, you know, I, in theory, as someone who likes hobby robotics, I adore Boston Dynamics. In reality, as a person who lives in the world and isn't fun, you know, fond of actual war, I enjoy my war in fiction. Thank you. They scare the shit out of me. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it, it's concerning. Yep. Okay. So, the universe you built in this series uh, doesn't really feel like it fits neatly into either a utopian or dystopian box. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, like you said, private corporation drove space travel and expansion throughout the galaxy. Proprietary technology ensures their intergalactic dominance. Uh, but there's a lot of progressive leaps for it as well from our world. So how did you go about deciding the tone to strike between optimistic and pessimistic vision for the future? Well, um, that sort of comes back to the fact that, you know, I am in the Bay Area and I'm surrounded by a community that is primarily progressive. We're, we're sort of known for it, I suppose, over here in California. But at the same time, like we have quite a few problems that are, are caused by greed and greed and ownership primarily. Of course, ownership comes back to greed, but uh, it's worth pointing out on its own uh, <laughs> that ownership is generally a bad thing. And I look at, you know, there's there's this, we have here a little microcosm of a society that tells itself it is progressive, that is primarily progressive in most of the things that push us forward, but also completely falls apart on issues like housing and, well, a lot of things, frankly, but it falls apart on, on certain issues that individuals view as roadblocks to personal wealth. So... You know, I, I wanted to take the prime society is sort of a, a mirror of that and that they, you know, they wanted to do the good thing. They were going to be an egalitarian society. They tell themselves it's a meritocracy, but they don't consider in a lot of ways the fallout from the fact that all of the power is concentrated under the ownership of one particular small group. 
and the ripple effects in that society is that it is not as egalitarian as they think it is, or as they would like it to be uh, from the top down. And of course, from the top down, they are insulated from the bottom and they, they don't see what's actually happening to the people who don't have the kind of access and advantages they do. And I, I wanted to, um, to show, well, first of all, I don't like any imagining of the future where disability is not given access. That's just a personal bugbear of mine. Like I don't like I don't like to read stories where there's no wheelchair ramp. Like it makes me angry. So <laughs> I, I wanted to make sure that these things were considered. And um, sort of bigotry has had its nasty edges filed off, but the actual class issues remain because at least here where I live, we tell ourselves that we want an equitable society, but we're not always necessarily willing to do the work for the equitable society, at least not in legal venues and stuff like that. So there's this shininess of like, oh, well, everyone's equal, except when their generational wealth is a thing. Don't go too much. No, I won't keep going. But yeah, <laughs> that, was, yep. that was the goal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would like to think that there's a general kind of progressive trend in society in the world moving mm -hmm. forward when you look like from a wide enough lens looking at it uh but definitely humans are always humans and they're going yeah. to be insular and they're going to be working towards their self-interest so you can never really truly get totally away from that yeah tribalism is a very difficult thing to combat and when your group is safe and happy and doing well and patting itself on the back because it treated the other group that maybe isn't doing as well with nice things um a fairly dangerous situation especially when those nice things are like basic human decency <laughs> right yeah it's a low bar <laughs> yeah it really is um but yeah okay so i guess looking forward uh you did mention that you're uh already working on a new series now is there anything you can tell us about it um I, nothing official i can tell you about it i can say it is okay. a space opera um there are three of them <laughs> it's a trilogy. I've actually just finished the second book. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And I'm in this weird spot where like, you know, the thing you're working on is the thing you want to shout about. Um, but publishing doesn't move quite as quickly as I would like it to. So um, there is a new Space Lab trilogy coming. It will exist. It's got really cool like fungus and plant tech and it's just fun. Like I really indulge the sort of like gothic side of myself I have too. So it's, it's I don't know, it's a bit different. I love that. Yeah, I, I can't really think of many gothic space operas. So that's definitely something I'll be keeping an eye out for. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's still, you know, got the, the fast pace and all that kind of stuff. But the, the, the themes are definitely heavily gothic. Right. Well, I would assume there's the fast pace. I mean, you are. Is that actually your nickname from that writer's Velocity Weapon, or is that just the, the title <laughs> no, for the book? <laughs> not that I'm aware of. I don't know if he calls me that. <laughs> no, just the book. <laughs> gotcha. There would definitely be worse nicknames to have. Yeah, um, I wouldn't be mad. I was fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, yes. Yeah. So, you're having another space opera trilogy then do you see i know uh, your writing tends to occasionally blur the lines a little bit between science fiction and fantasy uh so how at this point i mean not that you can really know the future direction of your career but do you see yourself more as like going down the space opera sci-fi side of things or maybe uh branching out at some point so, i mean it, this is one of those things where ultimately what gets published depends on what's what the publisher wants but i do have 
So <laughs> while I was waiting to hear back a certain thing about um, the trilogy I am currently writing, I got a little bored and stir crazy and wrote another book um, that wasn't <laughs> the contracted thing. <laughs> and that is uh, that is a space opera that leans a bit more fantasy um, in like the superhero kind of kind of vein. Um, I remember there, there's a lot of, I can't recall any titles off the top of my head, but there used to be quite a lot of old school science fiction that had a little more of a blending of science fiction fantasy. And that book definitely leans more that direction. So if I, if I do sell another science fiction after this, it might be that one. It might be another one. It really depends. Um, I do enjoy fantasy. Uh, I would like to get back to it eventually. Yeah, I know because you have yet another book that you've written or at least started writing. I know I was listening to the Tales from the Trunk podcast you did last year uh, where it definitely feels like it's maybe it seemed like it was kind of 50-50 epic fantasy and space opera. Yeah, so Conduit of Stone is that book. Um, And that is a book that I, I started to write before I had the chops to write it. So that was a very long time ago. And it is, it starts out looking very epic fantasy, uh, but it is not. And I, <laughs> I I sent the sample chapters and my pitch to my agent. He was like, okay, let's put a pin in this one and come back <laughs> to it. You've got a little more clout to sell something this weird. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so so that, that, uh, that draft exists and I do plan to get back to it someday when I actually have the time. Uh, well, that's an open question. Yeah, I imagine. Uh, I know there's like always the question of like, oh, like where do you get your ideas? Talking about like a good idea is the end all be all or whatever. But I feel like most writers I've talked to have way too many ideas for what they could ever possibly write. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm a fast writer and I'm still like, there's so many like half draft, you know, half planned, I guess you could say, not drafted books just sitting around in my folders <laughs> waiting for me to return to them someday. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I still can't believe that you said you write around 5,000 words a day. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> when I'm drafting it, it gets a little intense. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope you take breaks because that's like a good chonky size book per month if you're doing that constantly. Yeah, I, I do definitely take breaks. My, my poor wrist would not let me uh, keep that up for long. Um, well, yeah. Okay. I guess uh, moving away from strictly talking about your books, is there anything that you've read recently that you've enjoyed and you can share with us? Yeah. So let me think of what's announced. Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's tricky. <laughs> Bladed, Bladed Faith uh, by David Dalglish. This is this is an epic fantasy book. Um, okay. But it's uh, it, it was announced fairly recently, I'm sure. And, I really hope it was. <laughs> if it wasn't, if it's announced in like the next six weeks or so, we should be good because that's when this yeah. is coming out. Okay. Uh, he just does really great things like explorations of uh, what it means to be a paladin. Um, and he, he's, uh, it was just great. It had some imagery in there that was like really gross and beautiful, which is my favorite <laughs> kind of imagery. <laughs> All right. That was a lot of fun. And then, um, of course, Marina Lostetter, uh, she's normally a science fiction writer, uh, but she just came out with The Helm of Midnight, which is on the shelves. I do know that. <laughs> and it's a really great, like, I don't even call it epic fantasy because it all takes place in one city state, but it, it's secondary world fantasy with a dash of horror. So it's fantasy with a serial killer. That um, sounds fascinating. I have not read many of that kind of story before. Yeah, it was really refreshing to read. I, I mean... Refreshing maybe isn't the right word for a serial killer, but <laughs> it was great. 
Cool. Yeah, I know I'm always jealous that just the fact that you can say what's been announced yet, the sheer amount of books I feel like that writers get early access to. And that's, uh, as a blogger who also has some early access to books, uh, still jealous. Yeah, we are. We are spoiled rotten. Um, <laughs> so it was actually, I, I will not name names, but um, I have a friend who, you know, we usually she and I, both we put it on our Kindles to read the arcs and she forgot that she had a shared account with her mother. Um, so her mom read some books she was not supposed to have access to yet. It was telling her friends about them. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, no names. This never happened. No. Sure. Of course. <laughs> yeah. This is a great theoretical story. No, it's just, yeah. Could have One happened. of those half-written books that are on your computer somewhere. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so one way I kind of like to close out these interviews is just asking, what's something that you're excited about right now? Um, but my own writing? or It can be absolutely anything, however you want to take it. Oh, gosh, well, it's anything. It's getting back to normal from the pandemic. Um, <laughs> but more personal is uh, getting ready to share this new project that I've been working on. I'm really excited to start shouting about it. I've made graphics that I can't share with anyone. <laughs> I just, yeah, it, I think it, it's been a lot of fun to work on and challenging in a fun way. And I, I hope there's an announcement where we can all squee about it together sometime soon, because I know it's kind of unofficially announced in the back of the advanced reader copies of Catalyst Gate. Yeah, that was, um, uh, it's a weird spot to be in, in publishing Limbo, <laughs> but <laughs> it, it, it snuck in there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, I think that's pretty much all I have for you, Megan. It was so great to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. You can find Megan O'Keefe on Twitter as Megan E. O'Keefe, on Instagram as The Megan Folio, or at our website, MeganO'Keefe.com. The Protectorate series is some of the most compelling space opera I've ever read and never fails to hit the accelerator and speed along at high velocity. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyin.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server. If you enjoyed this interview, please consider supporting us on Patreon or take just a minute of your time to leave us a review online. It really means the world. And of course, don't forget to subscribe so you can catch all our future episodes. That's it for this week. Until next time.